This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get them out. Listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast, episode 17, with myself, Hank, from Fire Force Ventures. We're, as always, joined by Bindu from Men Among Men Stories. How are you doing? Hey. How do you too, man? Let's get right into it. I myself was very soon so hotly engaged, loading and firing away, enveloped in the smoke I created, and the cloud which hung about me from the continued fire my comrades that I could see nothing for a few minutes but the red flash of my own peace among the white vapor clinging to my clothes. This has often seemed to me to be the greatest drawback upon our present system of fighting, for whilst in such state, on a calm day, until some friendly breeze of wind clears the space around, a soldier knows no more of his position and what is about to happen in his front, or what has happened, even amongst his own companions, than the very dead lying around. The rifles, as usual, were pretty busy in this battle. The French, in great numbers, came steadily down upon us, and we pelted away upon them like a shower of lead and hail. Under any cover we could find we lay, firing one moment, jumping up and running forth the next. And when we could see before us, we observed the cannonballs making a lane through the enemy's columns as they advanced, huzzahing and shouting like madmen. So that was an excerpt, in case you haven't gathered, from a older work. Probably the oldest work we have looked at. Definitely the oldest work we definitely have looked, looked at. Okay, so definitely the oldest work we have looked at. And that's the Recollections of Rifleman Harris by one Benjamin, Benjamin Randall Harris. It wasn't written by him, because the man himself was actually illiterate. Completely illiterate. Completely illiterate. In 1848, a officer by the name of Captain Henry Curling of the 52nd Regiment of Foot came upon this old veteran who must have been in his, I guess, 50s or 60s at this... I think I think it's 50s at this point. Middle-aged, older man who had served in the Peninsula War where Captain Curling's own regiment, the 52nd Regiment of Foot, had um, served in the Napoleonic Wars, I believe, and he basically jotted down what this guy's life story. Um, and, and as we'll discuss later, his life story really was that of the Peninsula War mm-hmm. uh, and his experiences in the 95th Rifles, or the 95th Regiment of Foot. It is the oldest work we have looked at. It, it, it's very interesting because it's kind of almost like a time warp and it gives voice to the perspective of people that were, well, largely illiterate during this time period. Mm-hmm. There are accounts of the Napoleonic Wars from various French, British, even Russian and Polish officers. German, definitely Prussian German, as well. I believe, yeah, definitely Prussian officers. But in in terms of the common soldier, um, very few. Very few. Now and they this do is exist. One of those yeah, they few. they do exist. But because illiteracy was so rampant and the, the types of people that would have been drafted or volunteered for the military in, in this time period were not, at least to be 
common soldiers were not kind of the upper crust of society. So very much not. Yeah. So what, what did Wellington say? The scum of the earth. The scum of the earth. <laughs> yeah, being less than charitable. Well, I mean, there's there's debate about uh, that specific comment in reference to those people because it, it's more of like the salt of the earth is what he was trying. to Well, it wasn't it made after. Uh, bad at the siege of Badajoz. Yes, that's British right, yeah, troops yeah. did not perform particularly yeah. so nice in the aftermath. It, that's that might yeah, be the yeah. reason. Anyways, for the before quote. before we get too tangential, um, I, we should mention like we're not super duper experts in early modern history or the Napoleonic Wars. It's something that I know a little bit about, obviously, like because my university degree focused kind of in the time period before this, like the Thirty Years' War. So. I'm more familiar with that, perhaps, than than this, and and obviously we're both nerds about World War Two and all the, all the kind of twentieth century twentieth century wars and Rhodesia and all the rest. But uh, this is this is a bit of a new one for us. Like we're kind of treading new territory here, and hopefully it works out. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe we get everything wrong. But we'll try our best here, um, and uh, kind of give you guys a rundown of this book and, and this. Well, it's again, it's it's not really a book. Like I mentioned, it's jotted down by a guy. Um, and before we get into it, I should discuss kind of the for, like the format of, of this book. Um, I was actually introduced to it by this YouTube channel, Voices of the Past, uh, where basically this guy kind of does something similar and much more short form to what we do, um, giving voices to people in the past. And, and one of those things that he does is he, he, he does a reading from the book or a number of readings of the, from the book with accompanying pictures and stuff. And the result is, like, it really, really captivated me because, obviously, uh, we think about the 95th Rifles, and if you're a military history buff, you probably know the Bernard Cornwall book series Sharp and the accompanying TV show, TV series. So with Sharp being in the 95th Rifles, and he's actually reading it, a memoir of a soldier in the 95th Rifles. I, I I wasn't even aware prior to seeing this video. I think it was like last last January, uh, 2021. He he was he literally gave a voice to somebody who hadn't uh, who I, I didn't even realize like it had existed, and I, I didn't even think there were any like surviving sol records of enlisted or common foot soldiers in the Napoleonic Wars because I knew Ill illiteracy was a huge issue in that time period and just like in you know in the industrial revolution who really had time to write about their common experiences right it took people decades on in the 20th century like orwell to to go into factories and stuff and talk to the working class right it took a long time before the voice of the working class and the lower classes kind of came out very much so right and you, you know this goes back I mean, if you look at Roman history, there's not a lot of history on the voice of the plebs. Right? There are actually, there's one diary I know of that's um, about a Roman soldier posted somewhere along the frontier. But I think he was a centurion. So he yeah, would have been yeah. kind of like lower, not an officer officer, but would have been, came from sort of what we'd call probably a middle class background. Now. Yeah. Yeah. So for thousands of years, and right up until the Napoleonic era, um, we a lot of those voices are lost. 
Yeah. And that's just because they and, were... They, on, it's not necessarily because they didn't want to write or they didn't have the capabilities. Some of them were definitely literate. I think the myth that medieval or early modern peasants and stuff were comp- all illiterate is, is not totally true. Like, definitely... No, but it was, like, low. It was a problem, yeah. it, it would be, like... Like, literacy rates now in, like, Western countries are, like, probably, like, what, 98% or something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Back then, literacy rates were like twenty or thirty percent of the population. That's right. Now, yeah. again, not everybody was illiterate, but it was like something that just existed because people were, I guess, far busier back then, uh, far busier than us, and just in terms of be, having being able to heat their homes, um, you know, turning lights on, right, having illumination at night, uh, being able to tra- uh, move from one place to another. Right, it was all horse drawn. It's by the speed of a horse, or a wagon, or a ship. Right, news traveled slow. Goods traveled slow. It was it was much harder to live. Everything depended on harvests. Yeah, exactly. Those those harvests, like they were just busier. And I think that's that's part of it. Like there's no there's no point learning to read when you have a harvest that you have to deal with. So that being said, with farmers' fields and harvests and stuff, we're gonna go now to young Benjamin Harris, who was born to a Welsh farmer in 1781. Now, that's that's the presumed date. Uh, I, I'm, I, I've had a hard time actually finding where that actual citation comes from of his, of his date of birth, because these records back then were quite scant. As, as we've discussed, there's, there was illiteracy during this time period. There was pretty rampant war throughout the 18th century, from basically from 1700 onwards. A lot less accurate censuses as well. Yeah, it was it was a kind of a messy world. Europe was a lot messy. Western Europe, especially, was far messier than. Uh, well, they did like th- this is a bit later in like the mid eighteen hundreds, but like yeah, there've been censuses in of Europe of their colonies, and they miss like a million people. <laughs> and yeah, just, they weren't. <laughs> the world was a lot messier back then. It was yeah. uh, it was old school, quite literally, and it's 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 really a world that. Even people in like the third world would have a hard time engaging with because it was it's just it's just so different, right? It just it's just so different. And Harris is born. You mean the modern third world? Yeah, I mean the modern. Just, uh, just yeah, to yeah, clarify, yeah, right, for this yeah, 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 exactly. So I I because again there are smartphones in the third world now. Yeah, of there, course. There, there, yeah, there's, there's electricity. There's modern medical technology. There's modern there's medical technology. Yeah, yeah they, I mean they have they have like just regular paper. Yeah, there's. Clothes are a lot more comfortable, even like really crappy clothes. Something you would buy at like Walmart for a dollar yeah. is far more comfortable than what Benjamin Harris was probably wearing throughout his entire life. You can go to a grocery store and buy a banana when we live in Canada, and bananas don't grow in Canada. Yeah, right. So it's just it's just stuff like that. Like it's it's really hard to connect because it is it almost breeds. And as we get into it, we'll we'll discuss it. But it reads like a different planet. It's a completely different world. So Harris is is born 1781, presumably. He's a far. His dad's a farmer. His granddad was probably a farmer. His great great granddad was probably a farmer, and and so forth. He has a pretty idyllic life. He doesn't discuss it a whole lot. In fact, anything outside of the military, he he doesn't discuss, and we'll, we'll get into why. Toward, towards the end here. Um, he really sums it up very well, but in 17... 
you're sorry, in 1802, um, France and Britain actually signed a peace treaty. They had actually been at war in what was known as the War of the Second Coalition. Then First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte, not yet Emperor, uh, signed a peace treaty with the United Kingdom, Britain, Great Britain, and it was it was it was known that this thing would be temporary, this peace of Amiens. So the British army at this time was still very, very small. Uh, and they they knew like war was looming again. And then this Napoleon guy who was this crazy godless revolutionary upstart in France was uh, was was gonna pull some tricks yet again. In order to prepare for that eventuality, and again, another another war, which was looming around the corner against Britain's perpetual enemy, the, the frogs of the south, so to speak, they formed several new regiments, uh, regiments of foot, regiments of light infantry, cavalry, grenadiers, fusiliers. One of those regiments, uh, it... I don't think it was formed during the era, but it was basically in, it, it basically increased in size in this era. era. Um, it was the 66th Berkshire Regiment of Foot. And how did the British Army, or the Royal Navy, or any other military establishment in the United Kingdom in this period, 1802, recruit? Well, of course, some people wanted to join the military for all kinds of reasons, right? Another book I'm reading right now about Sergeant William uh, William Lawrence in the 40th Regiment, he joined because his master, while well, he was an apprentice, uh, was beating the ever-living daylights out of him, so he, he wanted to escape that, right? So you want to maybe escape a bad work situation in that case, or a bad home situation, or you dated a pretty daughter with an angry father, right? You wanted to get out. The same reasons that people would want to join the military, perhaps today, um, and, and and of course, God, glory, and gold, and all that, right? Because this is Europe, and it was very Christian, and you were fighting kind of for Christendom in some way by representing your country. So there, there was that dimension, and nationalism was starting to become a thing slowly. Not so much in the United Kingdom, I think, at this at this phase, especially in Wales. I don't think he was thinking about that. Anybody in Wales? No, but the French certainly. The were. French, this, yeah, it was certain, the, it was they, starting to come about. Yeah, right? no, nationalism. It like the idea of a nation, like kind of is age old. Like the, the Greeks, even like if you read about yeah, the Peloponnesian yeah. War, they talk about being we're a different people with different customs than the Persians, and that's why we can't. But be it wasn't by them. really mobilized in like the scale. No, the new the, scale. But there's something new that happens yeah. in the French Revolution. Which I think is, it's just again just scale. It's at scale now. Like yeah. everybody's. Well, also, it's nation. not connected right. now to a king or. A particular, yes, exactly, it's exactly. Just, it's just an idea. Yeah, it's the idea, the myth of the nation, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and this is this is this is something like I've studied like the, the development of the myth of of the nation itself, and. But anyways, I don't think Rifleman Harris is thinking about. Sorry, no, right? He's not Rifleman Harris right now. He's still Ben Harris, Benjamin Randall Harris. Mm -hmm. He he's not thinking about this. At this stage, he's just farming. Now, because, like I said, that this idea of nationalism, which actually was able to mobilize 
put millions of, of French troops throughout this entire period of what was known as the Napoleonic Wars, because it was like seven different wars. Millions of men all over Europe were mobilized for it, and millions alone in France. And millions alone in France of men, women, children all mobilized for it because you got to also consider all the families that, of the soldiers and stuff. So a lot of people were involved in this in this big event and they were mobilized because of this idea of the nation of the French Empire, this French that, that they belong to, this nation they belong to. Um, the United Kingdom didn't really have that. Again, Harris yeah. is from Wales. Yeah. There's also there's also England, right? People would identify themselves as English more so than British at this stage, right? Yeah. And they, especially if they were Scott, they they would definitely um, declare themselves more. They would identify more with Scotland than this United Kingdom, yeah. so to speak. There is kind of at this point an idea of sort of God and glory for Britain. Yeah, but it's... But it's it's in its infancy. It's, it's not like in the Victorian age yeah, where, yeah. where it will become I, very pronounced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very important to make this distinction here between like Victorian Britain because again, there was the, the model, the, the way warfare worked right up until Crimea was very similar to the Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s, right? And this is like 50 years later. But the idea is like radically different by that stage. It's it's definitely in its infancy. You had to also think about the history of Scotland and Ireland in particular, where just prior to the Napoleonic Wars, there were all kinds of Jacobite revolts um, to basically bring back a, a Scottish monarch to Scotland, whether that be, uh, I guess... James II or um, Bonnie Prince Charlie and all that, right? There are all kinds of little revolts in Ireland throughout that entire period. And prior to that, of course, is that long history of the Williamite Wars. Well, just four years before this, there's a yeah. huge or attempted revolution in Ireland in 17... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 1799, or 1798, sorry. Young Irelanders revolt. Like, there's... Ireland's always, like, perpetually in a state of rebellion. They, they had been at this stage for, like... 400 years against mm -hmm. against the, the English crown so the idea of, of a united kingdom was was very new and it had you know the act of union had been signed 100 years prior but there, there was no let's put it this way like there were no hardcore British nationalists that existed anywhere in the world because it just it wasn't really a concept it was definitely in its infancy there were no British imperialists. It was all maybe English, maybe Scottish, maybe Welsh, but definitely not British. Well, I think Scottish would see themselves as like an English imperialist if he felt that way. Like, because there were Scots who viewed like the British Empire as a good yeah. thing, yeah. but at this point they would just be considered like yeah, yeah, yeah the English adjacent. Yeah. So, anyways, that long tangent aside. How do you get people into the army if that's the case? Well, we've already talked about how to get why people might join voluntarily. Yeah, so how, but yeah. There's not enough men to join voluntarily. Exactly. The British so. army was very small at this time. Yeah. Very, very, very small. And they, they, they really needed men because they knew war was around the corner. So there's a way, and it's, it's slightly more uh, coercive. Now, with the Royal Navy, there, there, 
because it, the Royal Navy honestly sucked at this period because you would be far from home and Lord knows where and probably die of some disease. <laughs> Long, you know, or after, drown or in drown. a sinking ship. Exactly. Which is which is terrifying. So, like, most people, if you're, like, a farmer, you probably didn't want to do that. And the pay was not good. There was very little opportunity for gold or glory. All the glory went to the officers, the Nelsons and, and the Cochrans and the like. So you probably weren't going to have a lot of luck in that life. And uh, no one wanted to do that, so the Royal Navy had press gangs and participated in something called dragooning, where they basically kidnap you and put you on a ship, either get you drunk or knock you over the head or something, put you on the ship, and it's just like you're in the Navy now. Congratulations, right? Mm -hmm. Kidnapped Robert yeah, Louis Stevenson. Yeah. yeah. And um, that, that was a pretty scary like thing that people had to actually, like young men had to deal with. Like they're like literally press gangs roving the streets looking for guys that were, uh, you know, not paying attention and they, they, they'd nab them. Um, and the armies did a similar thing. They went from farm to farm, house to house, and they're just like, yeah, we, we need like this many guys, right? Obviously, there was a lot of recruiting, and if you if you were recruited, you would get what was, what was called a bounty, and you'd be given money, right? Uh, a few shillings here and there, which is a good, basically the equivalent of a few thousand bucks now. We, I think the equivalent, the modern equivalent, would be like a joining bonus or an enlistment bonus, and it would be it would not be insignificant. It would be like, you know, a good several months' wage, right? And you know, on, t on top of that. Um, you could potentially escape like a really bad home life situation or work situation. It wasn't particularly glamorous to be an apprentice or a farmer at times. But Harris wanted to be a farmer, and for that reason, in, in, in 1802, this piece of Amiens where the British armies like were mobilizing for the next war, he was conscripted. They just came to his door, and and despite the protest of his father saying like I need my son here at the farm. Um, the only way to really get a deferment was if you were an apprentice of some sort. So you, basically that bound you to your, your master, the person who was training you for whatever trade or work that you were involved in. So unless you had that kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, you were you were the Army's property. And at the same time, they also had like recruitment parties and entice people with money and that kind of stuff, 40 shillings on the drum, right? Speaking of sharp. Mm-hmm. So he gets, anyways, Rifleman Harris, well, at this point, Private Harris gets drafted into the 66th Berkshire Regiment of Foot, and they send them all the way to Ireland, which is fantastic, <laughs> which is not a bit of a backwater, among other backwaters in this time period. Uh, and, and basically one of the first thing he witnesses is in the execution of a soldier who was, well, another recruit, which is a very sobering thing to see, especially as he was a draftee and he, he's a brand new recruit and the first thing he sees is another recruit getting shot. And the story behind that is he, he basically witnesses this... Well, sorry, no, he doesn't witness it. Like, a bunch of officers witness this guy going around to different regiments and he'd be like, yeah, I want to join with you guys. He'd go to the recruiting party or whatever. They'd give him his money to join and they'll be like, okay, report here at this time and then he'd, like, leave... The red, he like deserted to Lord knows where. He was where. a con man. Yeah, he was a con man, basically. So he went to I th several regiments, like four or five different units. He got the enlistment bonuses, and then he would like disappear. 
eventually he got caught and it like because of what he had done and he had misrepresented himself that was considered a crap, capital crime at the time to take a bounty and not follow on with your military service now there's the possibility that you could be lashed for that so that you'd literally be whipped a certain number of times either until death or until a certain number or whatever or whatever comes first right so it was a, it was a, there were some pretty brutal punishments at the time because there were con men like this and i guess people were a little sleazier they're 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 quite i would say a little more fatalistic cuz the guy knew he could potentially die and he still did this just for some money maybe out of desperation maybe self interest maybe a combination of both who knows but uh, this is the first thing like Harris sees. He, he he arrives in Ireland and I don't know. Sorry, I don't know if he arrived in Ireland yet, but he was with the regiment and he arrives at regimental lines and he's and he's probably being yelled at by sergeants and stuff at this point to do this and that and wear his red tunic like this and that and they're like, come here, watch this, and it's a firing squad. That's the first thing he sees. It's the first man he ever sees get killed by musket and ball. So it's a pretty sobering experience. He does take up garrison duty in Ireland. It's so uneventful that he basically describes the garrison duty in, like, a sentence, and he just says, like, we, we drill. And again, this is, one of the, this is one of the pitfalls of having a book written by somebody else based off the, the uh, what is it, like, the, the, ver the oral history of another yeah. person. Like, there's a lot of levels of disconnect, and maybe he actually talked about the garrison duty, but the author, Curling, was just like, this is boring, I don't want to mention it. Now, maybe to him it was boring, because he was a soldier himself, and he's like, no one cares about how you marched or how, how you're trained, but he doesn't even mention how he's trained, he's just... Yeah. He's just like, I did I did garrison duty A lot years. of the book jumps around a lot. That was oh, my yeah. only real criticism of reading it. it Again, it's not around. really a book. Yeah, it's a it, memoir. It's, yeah, it's, and a lot yeah, of it, yeah. like, sort of stuff flows into the next event without yeah. really clear, sometimes, storytelling. I, I, I should also add on that note, this is a pretty short memoir. It's, it's very short. It's almost like you're sitting there in a bar, and yeah. he's just, like, telling you, like, random yeah, anecdotes about his life. It's around 100 pages. It's yeah. not really that long. It's not that long at all. So he, anyways... Garrison duty in Ireland is almost seven years. Or, sorry, not seven years. Uh, four years. Right? Before he actually sees any actual combat. And, again, it's just it's a sentence. That's it. It's just like, I, I learned how to be a soldier. That's that's all he said. He didn't explain how. We can we can imagine probably push-ups were involved. Right? And yelling and all the standard stuff. But in this period, he encounters these guys... And uh, I, I quote from the book with a devil-may-care attitude, which is, I mean, the modern equivalent to what he says when, when he says devil-may-care, because he actually censors the word devil in the, in the book, because he's a very devout Christian, or maybe Curling is. I guess this was written during the Victorian era, so very, like, there's a lot of censorship, yeah. self-censorship in, in terms of modesty and stuff, so... When he says devil may care, the modern translation in English of devil may care is guys that don't give a flying fuck. Like that's that's yeah. the, that's a literal translation. It's it's a more saying devil may care is very very intense as, as a way to describe a certain type of soldier. And he sees these guys and they're from the newly formed 95th Rifles. Now, it's not clear what year he first witnesses these 
gallant men in green tunics. Again, the the they, the 95th were devil may care soldiers, and part of that attitude came from the fact that they wore a different uniform than the red tunics of the rest of the British army. They wore green green uniforms, which was for for a regular line regiment was unheard of, right? It was it was like a real status symbol of we are we are special, we are better than you, we're we're elite. They had been formed in 1801 as the experimental corps of riflemen, um, and and earlier on they had they had seen a little bit of action in South America, and um, they they slowly became formally regimented into the British Army regimental system as the 95th Regiment of Foot, and then eventually the 95th Rifles. In addition to the green uniform, they're outfitted with the top of the line Baker rifle which, unlike the Brown Besses issued to the rest of the British Army in this era, was actually rifled, so it was significantly more accurate. Uh, basically, it was it was a continuation of some of the, the earlier designs, like the Ferguson rifle in the American Revolutionary War were used by British marksmen in that era. And, and on top of that, they, they fought like as light infantry, so in open order, not in the standard line not as a standard line regiment. They wouldn't advance in like a straight line. They would be broken up. They'd use cover. They'd take knees. They fire in the pr- well. When they fired in the prone, quite interestingly, it's just another anecdote about them. If we can picture this, instead of firing the prone as we're we're probably used to, if you any of you guys are sports shooters or in the military, law enforcement or whatever, you get down on your belly. They actually got down on their back. And they rested their muskets on, or not the muskets, sorry, their their rifles on uh, their foot, which is which is like <laughs> literally like they would be slouching back like this. And I'm I'm kind of motioning to it right now for Bindu to see because I don't think you've seen the, the have you, do you know about this like the depiction? So basically like, like this, like they'd be literally leaning back, they'd be like reclining like a Roman Roman emperor, and they'd be like balanced yeah. on their toes, and they'd be balanced on their toes. That's wild. Oh, it is wild. <laughs> they were wild because you think about that. You, you have an enti- you have you have thousands of men used to just march in a straight line, right? Mm-hmm. Fire your volleys and stuff, and retire and do your street firing and all that stuff. By the way, I, again, I'm not a Napoleonic expert. If you want to learn more about the tactics, de- uh, check out like Brandon F or whatever on YouTube. There's, a, there's actually a lot of great YouTubers that like visualize, help you visualize the mode of fighting during the musket and ball era mm-hmm. and style of warfare. But that being said, like, d- these guys were nowhere near conventional. It would be the equivalent of soldiers in... It- it's like mech suits. It'd be the, the, like a modern equivalent is like a modern soldier right now, say in Russia and Ukraine or whatever, they're, they're like on the border and they're staring each other down and one side all of a sudden just has mech suit soldiers show up. <laughs> like that, that's like the equivalent. It's just like, hey guys, I'm a mech suit soldier now. And just like, holy crap. Like it, it was, it was that like, you know, revolutionary. So he sees these guys and he's like, holy crap. Like, I don't want to be a red coat and I want to be one of those guys. Cause they, they are like, they are studs right, right away. Better weapons, better training, cocky attitude, right? And he actually enlists with a... He, he requests, like, a transfer, basically. They they allow it, and he's allowed to join this unit because he is a pretty good shot himself with the standard brown vest musket, so they're like, yeah, you can join this unit. Now, he doesn't mention... Unfortunately, it's just another 
issue with the book. He doesn't mention the, the training or anything associated with it. We can only imagine it was it was tougher, and there was some sort of selection process involved in this. Probably. Because you had to be a good shot. You, yeah. You had to be fast. You had to be smart. You had to be able to almost think more independently as a, as a soldier. You're not just working at this big like company level where you all fire your, your, your muskets at once. Like You have to individually pick your target, scope it out, decide how you want to shoot the target, engage, and move on. With In addition to like paying attention to your surroundings and stuff. So you had to be a pretty damn smart soldier, and we can imagine that Harris was a pretty good soldier in the 60, or 66th, so they were like, yeah, join the 95th. He hops on a boat with a bunch of Irish recruits, because again, he is in Ireland, and the 95th are actively recruiting in Ireland. They're on the boat, um, and just this is just kind of a funny side note that happens. Well, maybe not so funny at the time, because it was, it was very serious at the time, but Ireland has different sectarian groups, uh, namely the, the Catholics and the Protestants, and they don't like each other. And on the boat ride, they figure out, like, half the recruits are, like, Protestant, and the other half are Catholic, and they figure this out pretty soon. They're like, where are you from? Okay, what church do you go to? Okay, okay, and then they kind of, it's almost like um, junior high or high school prom or whatever, where the guys and the girls split. yeah. And they start conspiring on the boat. On the boat, and Harris in the middle is a he's a Welshman. He's he's a professional soldier. He'd been a soldier probably for a few years at this point. And the, and the guys start conspiring, and all of a sudden uh, they pull out their shillelaghs, which are these like Irish walking sticks. It's like a club. Yeah. Actually, it's very it the closest. A, the closest thing to it is probably. The African knob curve. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's a it's a stick that you can use to walk. You can use it as a as to hit things with. You can use it for it, like to wedge things. It's just a tool. Like every a lot of yeah. Irishmen carried these in that period. It's just like a, like a thorny log thing. They all whip out their knob curries and start beating the shit out of each other, and it's a full on race war on the boat. And like the navy guys have to like try to break it up, but they get like thrown into it. It's a disaster. Eventually, the fight does break up. They they arrive on land. They're like, "You guys behave yourselves because you want to. You know, you're going to be soldiers now. Be on better behavior." And they're like, "Okay, okay." And then they go to town and they have a few drinks and they're they're waiting to like go to go to regiment. And then another race war breaks out all over again, all over because again, there's I think there was like more there's like more Protestants than there were Catholics or something. So like like one side was winning. I again, we would have, the to, you'd have to read got your, reinforced by some dudes from another regiment. I yeah, read yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it's a mess. And again, you guys have to read the book to, to get the full story here because it is worth the read. We're not going to read like the full excerpt. It's a long, it's a few pages. But it only stops when the local town militia is mobilized and they load live rounds. Well, not live, not rounds, balls. They live. Uh, they load. Oh. It's only stopped when the local town militia loads live ammunition into their muskets and and fixes bayonets and and they basically form a line and they're just like you Irish need to stop or we're gonna like kill all of you and then, and then eventually the guys put their shillelaghs away. That's the only way to get the Irish to stop at bayonet point. And these were all guys that were fighting into the same army. So so much for that British nationalism thing. It didn't. 
didn't really pan out. I don't think I've ever heard a story like that in any other era in the British Army of like race wars breaking out as guys join the army. So that happened, and uh, pretty soon with with these recruits and uh, a few veterans from the South American campaign earlier, Harris is deployed to the Peninsula War. Now we'll give a little bit of context uh, before we go into it. Basically. As, as we discussed earlier, that, that piece of Amiens doesn't last long. There's another war. There's pretty, a few. There's a few wars, actually, in between. And uh, Napoleon, Napoleon turns on his Spanish ally. He invades Spain, which yes. had been, like, allied to him, but he deposes the king, puts yes. his brother on the throne. Joseph, yeah. Yeah, and then makes to attack Portugal, whose royal fl- family flees to uh, Brazil. Brazil. Now... Portugal and Britain are long-standing allies, and yep. I mean, Britain already hates France, so this proves the perfect example for Britain to send troops to yeah, both Portugal and Spain, Spain. Yep. Yep. and there's basically the British, Portuguese, and like pro-monarchy Spanish rebels are fighting the, the French in this sort of peninsular war. Yes, and um, as, as a result of this conflict blowing up and the 95th being an elite regiment that kind of needs to be used, breaking case of war, right? They get sent right to the peninsula and right to Portugal, 1707. Well, pri- okay, prior to that, there's a there's another little side note. Wellington and a few other British officers go to Copenhagen in Denmark and they bombard the crap out of it and there's a very very small engagement that's fought on land during the bombardment of Copenhagen and that's actually Harris's first ever combat engagement right it's relatively minor because they don't it doesn't seem like they take a lot of casualties and again he mentions it in like a sentence his first ever time being shot at mm-hmm. uh, and it sounds pretty intense and it's um, it's he said it's the only time he ever sees a man in like a like a formation break off and run like like run back into the other ranks and the guy the guy's actually like shoved and like pushed back forward but he says that was like the most cowardly thing I ever saw and and I, I remember I was reading that and I was just thinking to myself like the guy probably had like a, like massive PTSD because he had cannonballs flying by his face and just broke down and was freaking right. out um, and then Harris is like that's the worst thing ever it's like the, the man was like the devil right? <laughs> it's just he's he's not he's very disparaging against um, towards this guy I think because maybe because he might have been a sergeant, but yeah, he's not happy with this guy retreating. Like he's like we we like we advance into the musket fire and and the cannons and all the rest. So Harris, uh, he he's in he's involved in this very. It's a very brief campaign, and then he goes to the peninsula. Sorry, we jumped ahead. Just like his, Harris jumps a lot around in this book. He like literally jumps from the peninsula back to his first Denmark campaign, back to Spain. And then later on, he goes to the, the Netherlands. Like it's just so sorry if we get we get ourselves confused here because there's a lot of jumping around. It's a guy telling a story, right? Yeah. Uh, but he 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 finds himself in in Spain, and you read the excerpt. The excerpt that you read at the very beginning was from his first engagement at the Battle of uh, Vimiero, which was in or sorry, not Vimiero. That was a second engagement, August eighteen o one. He eighteen o eight, eighteen o eight, the summer of eighteen o eight at the Battle of Vimiero. He's present there, and it's pretty intense combat. Um, 
at the Battle of Rolica, which is his first real engagement in the peninsula, which is a year earlier, August uh, 1807, he sees a lot of his comrades that he had known for a few years at this point die in, in combat. And it's, it's pretty gruesome. Like, there's, like, one guy that is drinking his water bottle in the middle of the firefight and says, you know, cheers, and then his, like, head's blown off. Yeah. And uh, at, at this time... And, and obviously those that know about the American Revolution or just the Napoleonic era, this kind of like the 1700s, it's just early modern warfare, a lot of families would be brought along on campaign. This is a very, very foreign concept to us now. That ha this It basically hasn't been done since the Crimean War. That would have been the last time families were brought over for, for a number of reasons. Now, historically... Families would be brought on campaign uh, just as a, at the beginning of the pike and shot period. You would bring your family on campaign because your family would, like your wife and your children, would help support the army, either as sutlers or to forage or to just build up the, the tents, right? There cook wasn't. Something. Yeah, to cook stuff. There wasn't a dedicated, like, logistics network for these big early modern armies. Now, a medieval army is a little easier to field because they tended to be much smaller. And they just live off the land. And you just, just live off the land. Things. You can yeah. pillage. Uh, you wouldn't need the huge... Also, medieval armies generally only fought during, like, good seasons. Exactly, like, exactly. And same with the wars. ancient yeah. world. Yeah. Um, early modern armies, you're starting to get to more... Things are more complex. Well, less supply. of them are farmers now. Yeah, you're getting yeah, more, right. like, professional troops. The more, like... The more recent you get into history, the more professional troops you get. And professional troops don't need to go home to tend to their farms during this no, or that season. No, they need to be season. supplied potentially throughout winter. Yeah. Long periods of time. Yeah. They need now ball. They need powder, mm -hmm. right? They need steel. They need they, they need more, more elaborate uniforms. Yeah. Right? You need a lot more uh, to supply these armies than historically. And also just the size of armies increased. In oh, mu much so, Significantly. Yeah. So you just need... So having the families along made sense in that era. Now, that's a very foreign concept to us because obviously no one who, like, deployed during the global war on terror to Iraq or Afghanistan was, like, bringing their kids along. <laughs> I know there's a there's an Onion video. It was, like, bring your kids to work day. It was a huge success in Iraq. Only four kids died or whatever. Was, like, that, that doesn't happen. That's It's, it's like, a joke to us now yeah. to bring your family to war. But yeah, we'll was, just think of, like, either of the world wars. Yeah, so. no, like, you wouldn't... Hey, I'm going to bring my family to, like, Omaha Beach. And start yeah. My wife was with me at Omaha. Like, no, I, that just doesn't happen anymore. Right, yeah. You keep your family home because, like, there's well, the reason why is because then that period or that the modern era, so to speak, we have the ability to supply. And if it's just like if you can't supply your army, you lose, right? Yeah. So the army or the military or whatever, the navy or the air force, like it's 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 like self sufficient. Yeah. It supplies itself. The government, the state supplies. Right? Also, because it's because you need the state to supply because your your wife can't yeah. build you. An F thirty five. Yeah, your wife can't like repair your M one carbine. Also, I don't know if this would be so, a significant yeah. factor or not, but I feel like I feel like in the big conflicts like World War One, yeah. World War Two, a lot more of the men were younger single men. 
That's well, right, back yeah. in this day, you certainly would have had plenty of those in Napoleonic days, yep. but you also would have had a lot of like older married men. Yep. And I think now yep. you get more of that in like the reserves. Yeah. So, a lot of reasons, but yeah. people brought their families over, and this poor guy that, going back to the dude that raised his water bottle and was like, cheers, and got his head blown off, he, he, Harris actually has to go with him, uh, go with uh, the wife, the widow, of, of this guy and, and identify the corpse at, after Rolica, which is which is a pretty grim thing to read about and um, yeah, you know just to understand like how horrific this is. this is a woman that has followed her husband to Spain in the first battle he's been killed she has no way of going back home she has no husband anymore to look out for her she, she has to just like follow this regiment around as they campaign through Spain in the summer, wearing her very modest early modern female dress, which which would have been like some giant fluffy annoying thing, yeah, trudging trudging through the mud with all the boys, right? That she she doesn't know anymore. She doesn't know, and it's just it was just a really it was a pretty sad moment. And he and eventually he's just like, hey, I'll just like marry you so that you can like stay with the regiment. And she says she 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 declines and is like. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just gonna try to go back to England, and she basically stows away on a boat, and that's that's it. We don't. She disappears from history. This woman, and it's it's just like there's a lot of little stories like that uh, throughout the Peninsula Campaign. We won't we won't read uh, we won't read like all of them or anything, but um, there there's a lot of stories like that of these personal tragedies. He names everybody too, and there's just otherwise no record of these people outside of. Harris, so he gives a he gives voice to a lot of other little stories like these little and people and that we otherwise uh, would not have known about. So it's it's very interesting and again why you should read this book in particular. And one of those little things he also talks about is uh, just the experience of being a soldier and we, we've talked about how they kind of operate right very different than other units of the era, but the. Uh, and, and like I said, it, it's tricky to stay alive in this period. Just staying alive. And warfare, it was tricky to survive. Not just during the battles themselves with cannonballs and cavalry charges, but it was very hard to survive just on campaign in general. And uh, people people tended to forage and people tended to loot. And there's a pretty... Um, kind of like a weird story almost... Of, of of Harris talking about uh, the experience looting a a French light infantryman. After I had shot the French light infantryman and quenched my thirst from his calabash, finding he was quite dead, I proceeded to search him. Whilst I turned him about in the endeavor at finding the booty, I felt pretty certain he had gathered from the slain. An officer of the 60th approached and accosted me. What? Looking for money, my lad? said he. Eh? I am, sir, I answered. But I could not discover where this fellow has hid his hoard. You knocked him over, my man, he said, in good style and deserve something for that shot. Here, he continued, stooping down and feeling in the lining of the Frenchman's coat. This is the place where these rascals generally carry their coin. Rip up the lining of his coat and then search in his stock. I know them better than you seem to do. Thanking the officer for his courtesy, 
I proceeded to cut open the lining of his jacket with his with my sword bayonet, and was quickly rewarded for my labor by finding a yellow silk purse wrapped up in an old black silk handkerchief. The purse contained several doubloons, three or four napoleons, and a few dollars. Whilst I was counting the money, the value of which, except the dollars, I did not know, I heard the bugle of the rifles sound out the assembly, so I touched my cap to the officer and returned towards them. It's funny that the officer's like, no, no, you loot like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's a different time. Something that would have gotten you in a ginormous amount of trouble in any most modern armies yeah, yeah. is... Not, not only is he is... looting the dead, he's like, but the officer is telling him, look, cut his uniform right yeah, there. How to properly, how to loot, properly loot, loot the dead. Like, yeah. you, you clearly don't know what you're doing, which, yeah. is, which is a pretty funny line. Like, you clearly don't know what you're doing. I'm going to show you, like, you got to do it like this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Harris himself, too, is, is kind of a funky character because he, he, uh, he has some skills as a cobbler. He's pretty good at repairing shoes. Right, that's what the cobbler is a, is a shoe maker, I think, or shoe repairer. Yeah, a shoe bit person. of both, actually. Yeah, a shoe yeah. person, right? Yeah. And like we said, everything is hard in this era. Just everything is much harder. And your shoe, like people's shoes, like and boots and stuff, just completely fell apart all the time because they're always walking. They probably they weren't built with modern machine technology. They're like hand stitched and stuff, so they just weren't good quality. They would fall apart. And they'd often need to be repaired a lot of times, and this, this goes right up until the American Civil War. Like you, you hear stories, and you see even like photographs and paintings, guys are barefoot on the march because it's just like their their boots are gone, or their shoes are gone. Harris, being an interesting cookie, is a is a cobbler. It does help him because he's allowed to be friendly with officers. After all, he's the one repairing their their shoes, and everybody's shoes fell apart, officers included. So he, he develops good relationships with a bunch of the officers and stuff. But there's an incident at, I, th- I think it's Vimiero, the Battle of Vimiero, um, 1808, where he he thinks he's getting a get-out-of-jail-free card because he's told, like, hey, you don't need to be involved in, like, the main battle, right, today, because a lot of us need our shoes repaired. And uh, basically, he's told... Take take a bunch of people's shoes, go repair them, right? And this is this is the thing from Voices of the Past that really got to me because they they read it on that YouTube video that uh, first introduced me to this book, and I, I thought it was a crazy funny story. Well, not again, not funny at the time, and I don't think Harris thought it was funny. He probably thought it was like the worst thing that ever happened to him and traumatic and all that. But I I, I think it was pretty funny looking looking back in hindsight. So he's got the shoes of this like entire platoon. He's in like a hut. Yeah, and he's in like a, like a like a hut with um with a few Spaniards in it or whatever, and he starts like fixing these shoes and he's just doing his thing and putting the soles, gluing the soles back literally and stitching things and you know it's it's pretty chill and then all of a sudden, kind of it's just kind of like an active battlefield. He's a little bit behind the line, but all of a sudden a cannonball comes flying through the hut, completely collapsing yeah, part of the yeah. roof. Yeah, and he so he yeah he 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 bags up all these shoes and he's just running out and he he notices well you can you can read his uh, you can read his exact words here when I got into the open air I found all in a state of bustle and activity the men falling in and the officers busily engaged 
whilst twenty or thirty mouths opened at me the moment I appeared, calling out for their boots and shoes. "'Where's my boots, Harris, you humbug?' cried one. "'Give me my shoes, you old sinner,' said another. "'The captain's boots here, Harris, instantly,' cried the sergeant. "'Make haste and fall into the ranks as fast as you can.' There was indeed no time for ceremony, so letting go of the corners of my apron, I threw down the whole lot of boots and shoes for the men to choose for themselves, the captains being amongst the lot, with the wax ends hanging to them. So he just throws down all the shoes, like, here, grab your which ones. And, and there's this, like, mad yeah. scramble for the shoes. And just, who knows if the captain even got the right shoes. He probably got two left pairs that weren't his. Yeah. <laughs> completely, too, way too big, way too small. It just, yeah, life was just way harder. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, there's just, just there's stuff like that. And you, you, you it, it's really cool that we do have this memoir for those little stories. Because that's... A story like that is completely lost if you just look at the a grand narrative of the Peninsula Campaign, or you look at the Wellingtons and the Water uh, and the Napoleons and the Blukers. You just don't get stories like that, right? Now it isn't all like funny and weird. No, most of it's well, most of it's very tragic. There's a lot of little little tragic stories throughout, and and perhaps the the one of the most tragic uh, parts of the book in this. You you got up to that part. You start because I, I told you like this was going to be a tough read. Like it was going to yeah. not only in terms of the language, but in terms of just the the absolute agony and the suffering that these people go through. But um, the retreat to Corona, and we mentioned that there's families with them, which is like the last half yeah. of the book, <laughs> almost. <laughs> right. So after Vimiero, uh, which was in August, that that December they march on to Salamanca. Where later in, in 1812, that's where Wellington ultimately defeats the French in Spain. Uh, but that, that, that hadn't happened yet. This is 1808. So he marches on to the town of Salamanca, uh, and they eventually engage nearby in the, in the town of uh, Sahugin. Sahugin, I'm completely pronouncing that pronunciation. Yeah, I, I don't know how to say that either. Isn't that like a Warhammer villain or... That's that's a monster in Dungeons and Dungeons Dragons. And Dragons Sorry, it's a D&D monster. Yeah. So, Anyways, the uh, the Battle of Sahugan, they, they fight there. Savage engagement. A lot of his friends die again. And um, they, they, they kind of realize under under the command of uh, Crawford's Light Brigade and, and Sir John Moore that things are starting to not go well for the British. They're, they're like overstretched. They're way too far from Portugal. They're way too deep in enemy territory. They have to bug out from northern Spain. Right, they can't fight their way back to Portugal. There's just no way of doing that, and Napoleon's forces are are definitely getting the upper hand at this stage. So the, the decision is made to retreat, uh, to evacuate Dunkirk style the entire British expeditionary force, so so to speak, in the peninsula. They retreat to a place called Corona in Corona. Corona. I'm trying not to say Corona because. It's obviously been something that's been very pertinent over the past two years to our lives, unfortunately. Karuna, with a U, yeah. and two Ns, Karuna, the port of Karuna. And there is actually a battle fought there to basically, like a rear guard, so to speak, to allow the British Army to escape. And I, I knew about this like campaign. I knew about the death of Sir John Moore because of that very famous painting of this the, the British commander, Sir John Moore, being killed and, and that the... the the description of like the red velvet cape that his men put on top of him and it's a very moving account 
but I didn't know the retreat, like just marching to Corona was, was so horrific in, in the Spanish winter in the mountains. I think they're just, going through the Pyrenees. Yeah, mountains. I think they're going through the Pyrenees, and it's just yeah. it's it's miserable. You think Spain's like a nice warm? Life, at least I thought it was like a nice warm place. And you're you're better versed in the geography than I am. But Corona's cold. Like yeah. so at least the road there. Well, and also the thing like Spain, you have very like hot, dry, uh, lush areas. Yep. Further south, but the north. The northern parts of Spain can be quite mountainous, and during the winter they're very cold. <laughs> yeah, they're just, yeah, they're not. Yeah, they're not pleasant to be around. Yeah. Well, it's like our like, you know, our Rockies. You know, the Rockies in the summer are fairly warm to walk on, unless you go like really high up. But you know, yeah. during the uh, winter, <laughs> it's not a good time. So people are. Men, women, children, all accompanying the regiment are all freezing to death. It is, it it is absolutely miserable. They're not only are they freezing to death; they're being accosted and harassed by the French the entire time. There's there's a French army pursuing them. There's dragoons. There's cavalrymen. There's, they're cutting people down. Uh, women are being raped, like captured by the French and raped. Like there's there's an account of that. There's sporadic fighting and the whole time they're marching as their feet their their boots and shoes are falling apart they don't have cold weather it just the list goes on it's not a good time about this period i remember another sight which i shall not to my dying day forget and it caused me a sore heart even now as i remember it soon after our halt beside the turnip field the screams of a child near me caught my ear and drew my attention to one of our women who is endeavoring to drag along a little boy of about seven or eight years of age. The poor child was apparently completely exhausted and his legs failing under him. The mother had occasionally, up to this time, been assisted by some of the men, taking it in turn to help the little fellow on, but now all further appeal was vain. No man had more strength than was necessary for the support of his own carcass, and the mother could no longer raise the child in her arms, as her reeling pace too plainly showed. Still, however, she continued to drag the child along with her. It was a pitiable sight, and wonderful to behold the efforts of the poor woman made to keep the boy amongst us. At last the little fellow had not even strength to cry, but, with mouth wide open, stumbled onwards until both sank down to rise no more. The poor woman herself had, for some time, looked a moving corpse. When the shades of evening came down, they were far behind amongst the dead or dying in the road. This was not the only scene of the sort I witnessed amongst the women and children during that retreat. So yeah, just people are dying. There's a bunch of other things of, like, a husband and wife dying, holding each other. Like, just yep. people are just dying of exhaustion, cold, and hunger. He, he, he falls into quicksand at one point. Yeah, and it, like he he literally needs to be like dragged out by his like hair. It's just yeah. They, well, and also yeah. there's some really strict punishments to anyone who so much as complains about the leadership of the army. Yeah, the the guy complains about like a general, and he's he's lashed. And I think he's lashed around two hundred times yeah, on the spot. Just so people know, in the Royal Navy in the 1700s, you had something called Moses's Law. And Moses' law was 40 lashes. That was considered enough to kill a man. 
So yeah. the highest, often in the Royal Navy, they would say Moses Law minus one and give you 39 lashes. Yeah. So you can only imagine, 40 lashes is enough to kill a guy. 200. 200. And this guy survived and like yeah. apparently made it to the end of the march, but just... Yeah. Damn, right? Like, yeah, 200 lashes while you're starving, freezing, barefoot. Yeah. Being harassed by French the whole time, and the whole army's like, the whole regiment's, like, stops just so a colonel or whatever can get an NCO to whip you. Yeah. And this colonel was considered, like, their best officer, Yeah, he was, like, too. a nice guy. He was, like, the, yeah. the good officer, yeah. Well, like, Harris is, like... Harris says, like, the discipline was necessary. Yeah, it was necessary to keep us going, which is a completely not... It, 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 we 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 are completely detached from that mindset today. There's yeah, no, Harris is very uh, he's like old-fashioned. Yeah. He basically says like the man needed to be whipped because yeah. he complained. Yeah, and it's just like I would have figured like man, what an injustice or whatever. Yeah, right. That this guy or oh war is hell war is hell. And he's just like thank God we whipped that man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my goodness! It's just it's yeah. it's unbelievable. But yeah, the yeah as you were saying, I didn't. You told me this book was depressing, and I didn't. There were a couple, one or two, like when the woman finds her dead husband, yeah. that were a bit tear, of a tearjerker. But for the most part, up until this retreat, I'm just like, yeah, you know, it's yeah, war. Whatever. People are dying. Yeah, I mean, people are dying. It's tragic, but I mean, I've read tons of war books, and just you get to the retreat like, of Koruna, and it's just, it's like reading about a concentration camp. Yeah, it's, but it's worse because there's families. Yeah. There's families. Well, it is, it's like regiment. reading about like a yeah. concentration camp, just people keep, dropping and yeah. dying every, like, yeah, and you know, yeah. hour from hunger or yeah. disease or whatever. Well, at least in the concentration camp, it's, they, they split up the families first. Well, it depends on what we're, the, kind of concentration depends, camp we're yeah. talking about. Exactly. But, yeah. but, like, it's just the it's fact prison that prison camp in more general. Yeah. I wasn't referring to a specific one. Okay, but. so if I, I think, yeah, like Armenian genocide comes to mind. I think in my mind of just like families being killed, like wiped out at once. Yeah, in one moment. Um, yeah. Kind of POW campy, but it's just it's just the family's dimension. It just makes it all the more awful that there's kids yeah. with them that they're dying with their kids. Yeah. So they're dragging their kids yeah. until their kids are dead. And then they keep going until they, they drop dead. Yeah. And it's just like... Well, and also, sometimes, like, you know, the parents would die, and you just have this kid who's just, like, walking along holding some random soldier's hand, and the soldier's yeah. like, well, what am I going to do with this guy now? Yeah. Okay, might as well get him to the... Might you as, know, well, yeah, might as well bring him to Karuna, and then he's going to... Yeah. He might die before he gets there. They might die of typhus when he gets there. Yeah, and then some woman gives birth on the march. Yeah. That whole family survives, interestingly enough. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, these these people were they went through hell and the ones that survived were tough, tough people. Yes, no kidding. <laughs> Harris included. And amazingly he makes it to Corona. And by the time he gets there, there's only one other man he actually recognizes that he knows. Like, yeah, other than the officers. Other than yeah. the officers, because all everyone's like dead. Everyone he knows is dead. There's just one buddy of his yeah. that survives. Or just and, lost yeah, in the crowd. There was an Irishman. Yeah. Who, unfortunately later the one guy he knows is like killed in Toulouse. Because he goes back to the he goes back to Spain in um, eighteen twelve eighteen eleven eighteen twelve yeah Toulouse yes. Toulouse yeah, yeah sorry. you said Toulouse <laughs> anyway that's right <laughs> Anglophone supremacy coming coming on but yeah. Uh, yeah Toulouse he he's killed in action there in southern France after going back with Wellington to Spain so that's like all everybody he served with is basically dead mm -hmm. entire platoon or whatever they're like they're gone. 
sergeants, privates, corporals, everybody. Yeah. Um, but Harris survives, and he's like a skeleton, basically. He has to literally be hauled because he can't climb up the rope. They literally tie him. They like hog tie him. I've forgotten about and they, this yeah, they, part. Yeah, they, they drag him up the side of the ship, and it's just like. And as he's being dragged, his like beloved because he only his his rifles long his Baker rifles long gone at this point. It's like been wrecked, and it's I think it was sucked in by the swamp or whatever. Yeah, I think he left in the quicksand. He left in the quicksand, so he's he's dragged up. He's like hogtied first, and then they like they like rope him, and then they they drag him up, and his his beloved it makes you sad, doesn't it? His his beloved sword bayonet that he uses a lot through the campaign goes flying into the ocean. And maybe it's still there to this day. Probably is. Probably is. This tiny, yeah, like, rusted, the, decaying piece of metal at yeah, the bottom. Yeah, in the, in the uh, Atlantic. Well, it's on the shore of Corona, so it's probably still... Yeah. It's probably still there. His entire belt and his... He said it's his belt and his... Just the way he was, like, swinging, it just... It flew off because the leather... Uh, the leather had been degraded and stuff. Yeah. And he loses it. And he's just... He's basically, like, half... Oh, yeah, he had... His shirt was gone. He had traded his shirt for um, some sort of foot wrap or something. He, he yeah. traded his shirt for his, his undershirt. So he didn't have an undershirt on. He only had like this like ragged green tunic. So he's basically half naked yeah. at this point. He was just a mess. Uh, he amazingly survives. And he goes back to England. And he's he's such a tough dude. That he's just like that well, was that was awesome. <laughs> we'll we'll get to that, but first yeah. he goes to the Netherlands, doesn't he? No, no. He he first uh, the first thing he does is he goes back and he joins with the recruiting party. Remember that? Yes. Yeah, because he recruits. Oh, so yeah. he does say that was awesome. Yeah. Right. Yes. And yeah, he's and like convincing I, other men to join like, up. More people should join the regiment. I love this unit, and he, yeah. he goes after he, all that going through all, that all, all that in Karuna. Yes, yeah. yeah, he goes with a sergeant, and they go around towns just recruiting soldiers, and he loves it. He makes a lot of money doing it, right? He gives out a lot of bounties, and he's like, "We're gonna fight. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna like, take it to Boney. We're gonna kick his ass. We're gonna beat the frogs and all this stuff." And he recruits all these guys into the unit to reform basically the 95th, which it, his, at least his battalion had been more or less mm-hmm. destroyed by the time of Corona. And they deploy to Wallachrin in the Netherlands. And in very, very, very short order, without engaging the French a heck of a lot, I think he has one very, very minor skirmish with the French, because of the extreme weather of... of the Dutch summer in July of 1809, which is when he when he first deploys to Wallachrin, uh, everybody gets malaria. Well, there's some theories as to what it what it really was. Everyone gets sick, some everyone, sort of yeah, disease. It, they, they called it, it. It was almost like this supernatural event where everybody got this thing called the Wallachrin fever, and the, the symptoms were basically just malaria. And I'm pretty sure. It was just malaria, but they, you know, I don't think English people in the 19th century had any understanding of this, right? So they're just yeah. like... Well, certainly not someone in uh, Harris's yeah, so, social yeah, class. Yeah, yeah, doctors yeah. probably did, but... Yeah, yeah the doctors kind of knew what was going on, but... Yeah. All the Ducey recruits die. Yeah. Every, like, every single one, and he's... He's healthy. very sick. He, he's healthy right up until, like, all of a sudden he starts shake convulsing, and he's just like, oh, I'm, I'm done. And they barely even fight the French... He gets sent back to um, 
England in a miserable hospital where he has to actually he can't make it to the proper hospital they just drop him off like at port he's just like I, I gotta get out of here and he has to spend like a vast majority of the loot that he had earned in Spain in the peninsula to pay for a carriage ride to the hospital there were no ambulances back then you had to pay for your own carriage ride and it cost like basically I think it was like 30% of his life savings at that point Hell. <laughs> so he had to pay for his own hospital ride to save his own life he gets to the hospital and everyone's done. He, he, he kind of recovers a little bit at the hospital. He's not 100%, but he kind of recovers enough that they're like, you can march. Um, so you're going to join an inv what was called an invalid regiment, particularly the 8th Veterans Battalion. So it was a unit made up of guys that were missing eyes, arms, feet, legs... I, I don't get the point of the <laughs> regiment. It's like a regiment yeah. that can't be deployed. Yeah, so theoretically, this unit still was drilled. They were still under arms. They were given muskets in the event of a French invasion. It was a discount version of the whole. It's of like the basically army. Dad's army. Yeah, but worse because yeah. they're missing. Like his, he mentions his captain was missing like an eye, and was like insane, and he like, couldn't give orders properly, and yeah. was like babbling and. He had, like, brain damage, basically, because he had, like, been shot in the head. Yeah. So he was, like, serious brain damage, and he couldn't... He would, like, show up late to parade. There are people just missing legs. There are guys missing, like, both arms. Yeah. There, there's just lots of messed up dudes, and he was among them. He was, like, the healthiest one, because he's, yeah. he's just recovering from malaria. And uh, he's still not super well, but he joined... He, he's in with this unit until um, Napoleon is completely defeated at... In Russia, turns hightails the Prussians and the Austrians and the Russians. That's the Sixth Coalition. Yeah, the Sixth Coalition War. The Sixth Coalition really gangs up on him, and he's forced uh, to be exiled to the Isle of Elba mm -hmm. at, at this at this stage. And he's just like, you are, you are no longer emperor. Emperor, you are now. Yeah. In Elba, you're going to be basically under house arrest forever for the rest of your life. Yeah, just on uh, you can't yes. leave Elba was kind of the Correct. condition. Yeah. So and and that 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 stage, eighteen fourteen, they're like, okay, we don't need like this is this is a exercise in futility. You guys are released from your service. There's no more French invasion. Now those of you that study your history know eighteen fourteen was not the end of the Napoleonic Wars. There was a a comeback tour. <laughs> there was a comeback tour. Napoleon got off that island because um, the guards were not very perceptive. He, yeah. he literally well, he like made himself head of the island, and then after yeah. he was bored running, it, he basically just yeah. left. Yeah, he just and then left. Yeah. lands in the south of uh, France in like the basically the modern the, day the French new, Riviera. The new French monarchy. The, Bur the yeah, the Louis the Eighteenth like Well, Louis the Eighteenth sends soldiers to arrest yeah. him, like an army. They all join him, <laughs> yeah. and Louis the Eighteenth is just like leaves I Paris think, and I lets Napoleon sent, reoccupy. I think they sent two armies. They sent like a first one, like yeah. a smaller one, to like intercept yeah. him, and then they all join. Because yeah, he lands with like. You know, maybe a hundred guys, like yeah, just I basically know, his I homies, know, yeah. and then the and then like the first small army to intercept him join all joins him. So he has like a yeah. bigger army, and then like a big a second big army under Ab, um, uh, Marshal Ney. Yeah, is the, the famous scene in Waterloo, right? When the when the when he like walks up and he's like, "I am your emperor. If you want to shoot me, shoot me." And and they just all join him. Yeah, <laughs> right. They all they all join him, the entire army, and uh, that's how he makes the Bourbon monarchy collapse. Yeah. Um. 
and eventually they fight in Belgium and, and Waterloo. Yeah, Hundred so, Days Campaign, also yeah. known as the War of the Seventh Coalition. Exactly. That was the final one. That's the final war. And for some reason, they're like, we're remobilizing the veterans' bat- battalions, <laughs> the invalids, because we might lose this war. Like, Napoleon's really coming back with a vengeance. We might seriously lose, so we're going to mobilize the battalion. Unfortunately, at this at this point in 1815, his Harris's malaria symptoms came back, or his Walker and fever. They come back, and he's just, he's like, no, I, I, I physically am incapable of walking. So he doesn't show up to muster. Now, the 8th Veterans Battalion was not present at Waterloo. They did never went to Belgium. But legally, because he was in this like reserve unit, he still had to show up. Because he did not show up, Benjamin Randall Harris had his entire army pension stripped away from him. After everything he went through, his entire army pension was stripped away. But you know, he's just like, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, and he later went on for to become a fairly successful cobbler for the yes. rest of his life, as far as we know, because it's yeah. very obscure after yeah. after this. But yeah, well, there is some suggestion. I thought we read somewhere that he had his own shop. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's likely. So he, yeah, he, he like, took which up is not a bad gig in the eighteen yeah. thirties. Yeah, yeah. But he definitely. Um, I think he should have thrown a fit over losing it. But on on top of that, the other thing, the other big piss off to a lot of. Uh, people who had served during the Peninsula War is they didn't get their medals until like the 1830s or 40s for for the there was no medal now there was a Waterloo medal but most of the dudes that went to fight in the Battle of Waterloo were brand new recruits like draftees that were like you're going they're sending you because this is happening now guys like Harris got no recognition until decades after and most of them had already died at that point and he, he mentioned that in his book he's like I'm the only one in my regiment that I know of, right? I don't, like, I don't have any friends that are veterans that I talk to about this. I don't really talk about... But he doesn't mention that in the book. Like, I don't, I don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. They're, they're dead. They're all dead. And it's only been 20 years after the war. They're all dead, right? He's... He, his medals don't show up till decades later. They Finally, there's just a general service medal with the peninsula, you know, yeah. different battle well, bars for different battles. But, yeah, there's a Waterloo medal that's given to everybody that goes to Waterloo. Whether or not you're in the baggage train at the back, you get your, your medal. But he, he got nothing, and he got his pension taken I'm away. I'm a bit surprised by that, because the Peninsula War was kind of a sideshow to the general Napoleonic Wars. Yep. But for the British, it was the main it was the, theater. It was, the theater like yeah. the, it was a sideshow for the bigger like wars involving like the Austrians and the Russians and the Prussians. Like It's not considered one of the well, wars, yeah. the coali- so, one of the coalition c- wars. Contextually, it but was... But for the British, it was their main theater. Yeah, contextually, it was... The, the Waterloo Medal was like the first medal that was like a general service medal given to British soldiers. Prior mm-hmm. to that, there were no like medals, right? Um, and it was kind of the, the to be fair, I think it was inspired by the French tradition that had been established under Napoleon to give medals out for service. Yeah. So it was like the first time the British gave a medal. But of course, they should have, if they were going to create a medal, they should have also created one for the peninsula. I actually have a mini one I can show you. I can show you what it looks like. The, the peninsula one? Well, I guess I'll have to describe this. You'll have the... to describe it, but this is, this is right. the, this is the, uh, that's the mini of the peninsula. So it would look like that. It's very simple. It's got Britannia sitting on her, yeah. what looks like a chariot. Yeah, yeah. 
and she's got a lion by her legs, and she's handing a wreath of victory. Yep. And on the other side, there is that just the wreath of victory, yep. and it's got a nice sort of... It's like red and... Red and uh, red. It's got sort of a pinkish red and blue with yeah. uh, blue ribbon. Exactly. So basically, you would put a there would be bars on that for the different battles you're engaged in in the Peninsula War. And I think this thing was awarded right up until like the Fenian Raids. Well, That's why I have this one, this little, this little replica, because it's a, because it's a, it's a, it's the Fenian raid. So if you served a Fenian raids, you would have a Fenian raid bar. Oh, okay. I would say like Fenian raid, right? It'd oh, be no. like so that was bar. right up to the eighteen seventies. Yeah. So they, this is like the standard, like where if you served somewhere, right, you would get it. So there was, it was that was what was awarded them, like a general service medal. Um, and then Waterloo, I could be getting that a little wrong because I'm not super well versed, but I know for a fact I'm not certain. Yeah, I could be getting that a little wrong, but. I'm not super well versed in my medal history, but I do know the Waterloo Medal was awarded long before any other medals were. Like this is a Victorian creation, mm -hmm. right? The Waterloo was like, you were there, you get it. You're present in 100 days, you get it. And that's basically the life of Benjamin Harris, because Rifleman Harris, he doesn't talk about anything else, and he he sums it up very well about why his life is really just defined by his experiences in this conflict and we'll leave it with that yeah this is the near the end of the book the field of death and slaughter the march the bivouac and the retreat are no bad places in which to judge of men i have had some opportunities of judging them in all these situations and i should say that the british are amongst the most splendid soldiers in the world give them fair play and they are unconquerable for my own part, I can only say that I enjoyed life more whilst on active service than I have ever done since, and as I sit at work in my shop in Richmond Street, Soho, I look back upon that portion of my time spent in the fields of the peninsula as the only part worthy of remembrance. It is at such times that scenes long past come back upon my mind as if they had taken place but yesterday. I remember even the very appearance of some of the regiments engaged, and comrades long moldered to dust I see again performing the acts of heroes. So I would argue this is kind of when there is sort of a, we were talking about British nationalism. I'd say there's when a certain tradition of British pride, purely in the military, is beginning. And that arguably, like... That's probably the motivation for Captain Curling to record this memoir. Yeah, and that's sort of his stretch to, like... Like I, we we've both been to the UK, right? I haven't. Oh, you have not been. been. Okay. There's a number of all over major cities and, and everywhere. There's a historic site, regimental his, uh, histories, and they all start with either the Napoleonic Wars or just before that. Yep. And they all head to like, you know, modern like Iraq, mm -hmm. and um, there's this very like sort of proud tradition in the British Army, and I think that was kind of. That's sort of their idea, not so much of nationalism, but kind of a almost sort of a military focused sort of identity for a lot of for the British soldier. Mm -hmm. That's this sort of very long, proud tradition. And uh, as to sort of Harris, who wrote that literally right after the march at uh, from or the march to Karuna, um, it's quite a thing to claim that that was the the best time of his uh, life. 
Uh, well, he doesn't write. He well, says, yeah, it's yeah. it. He, Conver- he, conversationally, right after he's describing the march to Corona, yeah. he says that. Yes. The best time of yeah. Life. Yeah, and um, yeah. So yes, maybe you know, yep. years gone by, he's forgotten how horrible it is. But still, that is a. It's an incredible um, sentiment, and and I don't know if it just is sort of this thing that like people in the old days were a lot tougher, or if it's just the idea like of you know. The adrenaline that a, a, a certain type of man, a certain type of soldier has, where they're like, you know, for all the horror and the suffering, the battlefield's where I want to be. And we, we get that a lot when we read, like, Ernst Jünger, and I found yeah. a little bit with that, Will with Arbor. some bits, Will Arbor, at Dennis Krukamp a little bit as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's not new, but maybe... Maybe that's age old. Maybe age that's old. still around. Yeah. And that's, that's I guess that's how we can maybe be tougher collectively as a society perhaps find some find something that gives us the same adrenaline without having to fall into quicksand and watch children die and stuff all right so uh we'll leave it at that this uh, this book is available spirited uh what first person shooter video game something i don't know um so uh, yeah well again we'll leave it we'll leave it there but uh, if you want to get this book it's on amazon very very easy to find it's actually because it's so old it was first published in 1848 way into the public domain now there's no Captain Henry Curling died in 1864 so I don't think his descendants are going to come after you uh, it is available as a PDF on like the freelibrary.com or whatever like it's it's you can google it and the PDF is available if you want a physical copy it's on Amazon it's like five bucks because it's it's so old you know funny enough it was published like the same year as Communist Manifesto yeah. 1848 right so um, maybe it was an answer to the Communist Manifesto. It's like, no, we need to whip them, you know, like stuff like that. So anyways, we need to loot and whip, right? Uh, so maybe, Certainly a very different mindset. Very different mindset for sure. So I, I think um, if you want to get this book, it shouldn't be too hard for you because it's it's available everywhere. It's a very quick read. You can basically finish it in an afternoon, I think. It's yeah. Not, it's not too crazy. Although I will, it is pretty. It is grim. It is very grim, so maybe you don't want to. Don't, anyway. Yeah, this isn't a this isn't a book you read curled up in bed with hot chocolate in your pajamas. This is like yeah. sitting in the Unless rocking chair. Unless you have something very wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> this is like sitting in the rocking chair, thunderstorm outside, brooding. Yeah. Pipe in your mouth, like here we go. Right. This is oh, one of those books. French. <laughs> Damn Frenchman. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, if you wanna, if you wanna read this, it shouldn't take you too long, and it's easy to find. Again, Recollections of Rifleman Harris. There's a revised edition from 1995. That one's a little trickier to, trickier to find because it's got some forwards and stuff uh, by Eileen I I Hathaway, I think her name is. But anyway, it's just the 1995 edition. It has some more historical context because if you find like the basic Amazon version, like the one we read, it just goes right into the account without any context. And uh, obviously with a conflict as long-lasting and varied and kind of confusing as the Napoleonic Wars, you, it's good to have a little bit of context. So hopefully Absolutely. we've given you that today. Anyways, uh, thank you again for listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Uh, you can always find us at menamongmenstories.com. Check us out there. We have 16 other episodes that we've recorded over the past year and a half, which has been quite a long time. This is our first real episode of the, of the year after our, our uh, New Year's special thingy that we did not too long ago. Uh, we'll have more podcasts coming up in the near future. Lots of plans for more merch this year. 
all kind of in the works right now, preliminary stages, but uh, we're, we're working on building this out. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Subscribestar, subscribestar.com slash men-among-men-stories, or you can just click on the donate link at menamongmenstories.com. That's the best way to support us to help with our ability to, well, get better books, better equipment, do this better for you guys. We're also going to be moving to a new like studio thing that we're building out next month, I would say. So yeah. To, uh, the, the next next podcast might be delayed a little bit because of that, but at some point next month we're moving to a new location to record these podcasts. So hopefully the audio quality will be yeah true. much better. Eliminate a lot of the background noise. Yeah, exactly, and it's it might it might sound crisper. So hopefully it does. Maybe. Uh, we'd love some feedback at that at that stage, though. If um, mm-hmm. if you guys can give it to us, we'll, we'll let you guys know which is the first one recorded in the new studio. Exactly. Yeah. Please let us know if there's improved audio quality. And uh, you can always contact what's that email again? Info at uh, men info men among men stories dot com. Great. So again, that's info at men among men stories dot com. You can contact us. We there. also have a contact form on our website. Yes. So you can you can get in touch with us. There. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and all the rest. Follow my work at www.fireforceventures.com or Instagram at fireforce.ventures, Facebook at fireforceventures. Lots of cool military surplus there. I actually do have a 95th Rifles tribute patch that I made up, um, which has been very, very popular. It's the Chosen Man patch, based kind of more more so off the Sharp Show. And uh, I also do have a the Rifles Regiment flag, which is the modern incarnation of the 95th Rifles of, well, Rifleman Harris. So you can check that out all at www.fireforceventures. Check out our friends at Commando Blog as well. And you may actually be listening to them, to us on Commando Blog. Yes. And you may actually be listening to us on Commando Blog. Uh, we uh, are hosted there, and they're they're doing something really, really cool in the near future, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. So stay tuned to them because cool things are happening on their front. And as per normal, to all of you guys, our great listeners, Virus Club supporters, we we love you, and you guys are fantastic. You guys make this thing happen. All of our other listeners especially those military, law enforcement, first responders, um, firefighters, right? Big shout-out to you guys. EMTs, our EMTs, they don't get enough love, I think, So, but EMTs too. Special shout-out to all you guys. You guys are fantastic. Allow us to do what we do in a free society where we don't fall in quicksand and freeze to death and that kind of stuff. So uh, keep on keeping on, so to speak, and um, we'll catch you next time. So pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a great day, guys.